0: Hi, I'm Mary C. Curtis, and this is Equal Time. The cold weather snap in Texas has passed, but questions remain about why it happened and what can be done to avoid a repeat. Traumatized residents who were without power and clean water for days now face cleanup and four- and five-figure energy bills after the deadly storm. An increasing number of states have been dealing with the results of extreme weather events linked to climate change and global warming. And in those states where natural disaster strikes, communities of color are often the first and the hardest to be hit. Houston resident Chrishell Pillay is familiar with the situation, and not just because her family's water was disrupted for a day and electricity for 48 hours. Her nonprofit, called the HOME Coalition, which stands for Houston Organizing Movement for Equity, advocates for equitable recovery from disasters. Some households in distress still have not recovered from damage left by 2017's Hurricane Harvey. Communities of color, already disproportionately affected by the COVID-19 pandemic, face unique obstacles that Pillay and her collection of community organizations work to overcome. Later in the show, we'll dig deeper on environmental justice with Justin Anwenu, who attended Rice University in Houston, where he observed Hurricane Harvey and its aftermath, spurring him to get involved. He's now based in Detroit, where he is an environmental justice organizer for the Sierra Club, focusing on the fight for clean air and clean, affordable water for all communities. Anwenu is the youngest member of the inaugural Michigan Advisory Council on Environmental Justice and an appointee to the DNC's Environment and Climate Crisis Council. Palay and Anwenu join Equal Time to talk about the politics and policies that got us here and what needs to be done to move the country forward equitably. Well, welcome to Equal Time, Krishal.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Well, first of all, how are you doing?
1: Considering what so many other Houstonians and Texans are going through, I consider my family to be extremely um, blessed um, and doing well. Um, You know, we're just trying to, again, find another new norm on top of the new norms we've already established. So, My family is, as well, just now, just really concerned about our community.
0: Speaking of that, uh, could you tell our listeners about HOME, about your coalition of groups, about your mission, and why is it so needed in Houston?
1: Sure. So the HOME Coalition, which stands for the Houston Organizing Movement for Equity, uh, was founded in Houston, Texas, and it was actually created while Hurricane Harvey was still swirling over our region. And um, it's a collection of different organizations that came together to really make sure that Houstonians and Texans were able to recover from disasters in an equitable manner. Um, Our work kind of spans the spectrum. Uh, We work on housing issues, um, flood control issues, also environmental justice, labor, and just disaster response um, across the board. And so what we found is that um, although our organization was founded to specifically focus on the survivors of Hurricane Harvey and even more so vulnerable communities of color, um, we're realizing that home does so much more and there's so much more work to be done. Um, Since Harvey, we've had other flooding events um, and now we're dealing with COVID-19 And now dealing with the outfall or the the fallout rather of a historic winter storm, which has had another layer of burdens um, for the communities that we serve.
0: Well, could you tell me how and why uh, certain communities are affected more than others with all these various crises?
1: So um, the way that that we see it is that this is actually nothing new. And what we're seeing is a result of... um, you know, legacies and years of um, systemic racist, not just policies, but beliefs, uh, practices, um, and just norms. Um, our communities are now bearing the brunt of this crisis, but it's, it was of no no fault of their own. Um, even before the winter storm, b- before COVID, before Harvey, you know, these communities have, spe- specifically these communities of color, low-income communities of color, have had to survive the legacies of discriminatory policies, laws, um, and uh, uh, touching all parts of their lives from education, wealth, health, you know, and the list continues to go on. Uh, Dealing with the legacies of redlining, discriminatory lending practices, um, inadequate flood control. Those things were haunting our community prior to all of these disasters. So now the disasters just have a tendency to exacerbate these existing issues
0: and and while the spotlight after something you know the weather's getting warmer and the spotlight leaves uh, but these problems and crises remain even this aftermath. I know so many still haven't recovered the damage from Harvey and and I see these uh, images coming out with flooding and mold and all sorts of problems. Could you talk a little bit about what people are still dealing with?
1: Sure. So, you know, to your point, even before Harvey, um, there were so many homes that still were, were damaged from other, just on, honestly, from um, regular rain events. Um, and, you know, we get our fair share of, um, of rain. And so many homes, were, even before Harvey, had blue tarps to try to protect the roofs. Uh, and so c- at continual events, just continue to compound that. And it's not just the physical structure Um, is also all these different health impacts. Because what happens is when it rains, uh, when water moisture comes in, then the walls end up getting wet, um, mold becomes present. And if people are unable to remove those wet materials and those moldy materials from their home, then on top of just um, uh, a structure and disrepair, you now have um, health issues in the home. Um, you know, many times what we see, and especially in our lower income um, Black communities, uh, we see really higher rates of asthma in children because of exposure to mold. Um, we see a lot of respiratory issues actually in these communities. And mind you, oftentimes this is compounded by environmental uh exposures and toxins in these communities as well. Um, so those are just some examples. Then also um you know, we, ha- we, we can't forget COVID. We're still in the middle of this global pandemic. And so, so many people, um, because of COVID, have of course lost their jobs. Um, and then, even last week and this week, because of the winter storm, we have folks that, you know, weren't able to work last week nor this week. I think about, um, you know, the staff members at my kids' schools, um, you know, the custodians, um, the teachers' aides, the crossing guards who are hourly workers who've not been able to work now for two weeks. Um, and this is in the middle of um, an eviction crisis as well that was already ongoing because of COVID. So again, just all of these issues continue to be compounded, you know, one upon another on another.
0: Yeah, it's so interconnected. And I know um, in Houston, there, the zoning laws are so loose that you have the problem of chemical plants and things like this. Uh, isn't that true?
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, And what we've found in in, in many of our organizations, um, many of the members of the Home Coalition are actually um, environmental advocates. And what we see in Houston, because of the lack of zoning, is that you have inside communities where there are uh, petrochemical companies that literally are in the backyard of communities. Communities that were established first, um, and then in some cases were, were annexed and property was purchased by petrochemical companies. And now um, these these families' lives are you know, at risk on an ongoing daily basis. Um, and then also in the times of disaster, you know, there are so many releases, so many toxic releases. Um, and I understand that you know, the amount of toxins that were released um, during Hurricane Harvey was just overwhelming and no one really has been held accountable for that. Um, I understand, you know, even during the winter storm that we just had last week, that uh, due to the freeze, I guess some of the equipment was compromised, and there was a higher rate of releases in in our, in the environment um, than than usual, and again, you know, what we see is so many, so much lack of regulation um, here in Texas, and Because of the lack of regulation um, and so much focus on profit, so many community members are sacrificed, uh, which is really, really a a disgrace. Um, I just continue to think about, you know, there was ongoing discussions about the way in which our power grid just totally failed us, totally failed us. Um, And how we purposefully did not partner with East and West Coast grids because of regulation, because of, of fees, because we wanted to, our, our state wanted to, to be able to charge what they wanted to charge. You know, and, and then even during the aftermath, what we're learning is that our power grid is, is in such shambles, um, even to the point where I understand that there are several generators that purposefully are not working so that regulators could charge more for power. And it's just it's just a disgrace. And um, on one hand, I mean, it took a winter storm that collapsed the entire state to get a sense of what was going on behind the curtain. So I just hope that, you know, and what we're going to see to it, of course, in in our advocacy work, that we really uh, put pressure on the state to address these issues. Um, And even as of yesterday, I understand many of the board members resigned um, from that agency. But uh, we have to see some some you know, real change, not just the changing of, of people in seats, but dismantling um, the rules, the regs, the policies, and um, and even looking at how we even got to this point.
0: Now, I know your organization, you're, you try to establish equity and keep attention on these problems because, as you said, so many people don't pay attention. Uh, are you seeing that you, people are going to get involved and that you are going to have some allies in this so that this won't be just another one of those events that... A couple of months from now, people will will have forgotten just how devastating it was.
1: Yes, and I feel like we've had allies already along the way. Um, I think it's just it's again more so about really connecting with community members that are most the most impacted. And what we what we're finding or what we know is that most community members that we continue to you know that that on whose behalf on whose behalf we're working don't have the luxury to focus on one particular issue. You know, it's it's all so very connected. So it's helping them understand that. And then also helping to lead them to small wins because who wants to be in a fight and they can't win? So just for instance, you know, prior to the winter storm um, coming, um, like I mentioned before, you know, we were in the middle or we still are in the middle of an eviction crisis. And up until now, our city um, had no nothing in place as far as, um, uh, you know, any type of ordinance in place to, to stop evictions from happening. So we were able to um, talk to a lot of tenants who were facing eviction or either had been evicted uh, to really push for and, and weigh in on a city council meeting regarding um, a grace period ordinance that was on the um, city council agenda that um, that agenda item ended up winning. And so now, um, you know, we at least have some protections in place. Now, to be clear, it's not as far and and doesn't cover as much as we hope for, but it's a step in the right direction. But had it not been for the pressure of real tenants calling in, talking to the city council representation, calling the mayor's office, calling the media, then that grace period ordinance probably never would have made it to city council agenda.
0: Tell me, you know, you were talking about people who don't have insurance, who don't have water, that can't get to these centers. Uh, How will they get relief? And and do you have any uh, recommendations that people can help?
1: Unfortunately, we're seeing a lot of it and a a lot of damage, a lot of people that don't have insurance. um, It's pretty overwhelming um, we have a couple of local groups that are trying their best to do what they can with their small staffs to help folks. Um, so there are a lot of efforts, you know, just kind of in play right now. You know, we are right at a, a week or not even a full week <laughs> out of, you know, the, the storm. And so people are still organizing themselves, but we know for sure that, you know, we're going to need um, more supplies there. We are, it is so scarce when it comes to plumbing supplies. Um, those who that have means are able to travel two, three hours and beyond to go to other cities and towns to get some of the supplies. But those folks who can't afford a plumber um, and those folks that don't have flood insurance, not flood, but those people that don't have homeowners insurance are left, you know, in the same predicament they went in before with Hurricane Harvey, just trying to make it the best they can. So right now we are definitely, you know, if If you're a plumber or a part of a a plumber's union and um, you want to to help, send help um, down to Houston, to Harris County or to to Texas, period, because we are in great need of of plumbers. Um, You know, I was even talking to some colleagues um, earlier today saying that, you know, in some cases, you know, you typically hear about scammers in situations like this, but in some cases, it's not even about scammers. It's, um, you know, like if, if you have one neighbor, one community um, who tells a plumber, oh, well, I, all I can afford to pay you is $50. And then the plumber says, oh, well, over here, I can get paid $200. They're going to go to the $200 job.
0: You have had events and uh, we see with the storms and such things happening. So what needs to be done to get ahead of the next uh, weather event and the next commu- crisis? because. You don't want to turn around and then say, oh my gosh, this was so unpredictable. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. are, things, are there things being done? I mean, you're so busy playing catch up, mm-hmm. uh, obviously, what you're saying. Um, are you planning to, is the community, uh, community organizations, your leaders planning for what could be ahead?
1: Well, I think we, as a community, we're definitely, you know, I feel like we have this playbook that we're constantly working on when it comes to re- disaster response and uh, recovery. But even beyond that, you know, uh, how we really make change at this particular time is looking at the policies that are currently in place and how, um, how recovery uh, does not look the same for everyone um, in our community. When we look at, you know, the, the, the federal policies and how FEMA typically is the first agency after a disaster is declared, FEMA is the first agency that, you know, that people go to. And if you have um, access to a computer, um, then, you know, you can get signed up really quickly. And also, if your home is, is in pretty good condition, then if their chances are, the chances are you have higher chances of getting, um, getting assistance. Because the way that FEMA looks at um, damage is often if you have pre-existing conditions, they will say that that was pre-storm damage and will deem that damage not allowable and so we are continuing to see how um these you know these uh policies really uh weigh in on and exacerbate like the wealth and uh wealth um gap as well. We also are seeing there was a study done um a couple, three years ago, so by Rice University and the University of Pittsburgh, that really uh, underscored how white families actually um, increase their wealth um, following a disaster, as opposed to black families whose wealth decreases. So it's looking at the way all the systems that work, not necessarily the way in which you know communities must be prepared, but you know how is our government showing up for us um, when we look at the state. And I mentioned earlier about the Public Utilities Commission and um, how like, currently there is nothing in place, even though pressure is being being put on them, but there's nothing in place that's stopping them from from charging excessive fees for customers during the winter storm. Uh, We're hearing about exorbitant bills that people are receiving right now. And there's no way that anyone should be paying 200 bucks a day for electricity because of a statewide natural disaster.
0: So tell me what's on your priorities list. You um, are faced, as you've been talking about it, it seems like an endless amount of crises that you're trying to deal with you and your organizations uh, with the help, of course, with the folks on the ground.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What would you place on your priority list?
1: Um, right, now like, right now, I feel like it's more so response and trying to connect our... Um, our providers, our service providers um, with people that are in great need, um, trying to um, uplift those communities that have really been forgotten, that people don't exist, so don't have water um, and trying to really you know, uplift those communities. Um, then the, the next part will be um, really have, get, get going deeper um, and understanding the policies and where the changes need to happen. And um, again, uplifting those and connecting the dots you know, we have to, you know, be sensitive and understand that people are struggling right now. People are still enduring trauma. So to expect folks to just turn up and, and turn out to meetings specifically around, you know, advocating for particular policies, that's not going to happen right now. So we have to make sure that uh, we're treating our community with care, um, with grace, and understand, you know, what they're going through. Um, in the meantime, start to do you know more and more research, but ultimately being able to you know galvanize our community members um, to really start to shift the, the the powers that be, so that we can start we can get closer to a, a just uh, society. And you know that's not even necessarily just with this winter storm. You know this was this was present before this storm. Again, you know storms like this just have a way of um, exposing the vulnerabilities and. When the general public gets a taste of it, then people want to pay attention to it.
0: Mm, yeah. You're right about every kind of time we have a Well, Like COVID exposed disparities in healthcare, and insurance and transportation and broadband. Every time there's something that happens, it exposes all the cracks. You're right. And Absolutely. Story, it's like they were there. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's I, it just like, like to... that water leaks in. You yeah, know? absolutely.
1: Like... I'm looking at, when I look at some of the zip codes that are the most vulnerable when it comes to COVID, they happen to be the same zip codes that um, endured you know, so much flooding during Hurricane Harvey. And, and there tend to be the, the, the same zip codes over and over again You know, when it comes to crime. I mean, it's just over and over and over again. And so um, until we can get to the crux of that, And be very clear about, you know, why these things keep happening. And it's not just about um, reform. It's about tearing it down and rebuilding. Because reform is not working for, for all of our community members.
0: I want to thank you, Chrishell Pillay, for joining Equal Time and giving us a real view of the situation in Houston and beyond. Uh, and something that we all need to be thinking about because it's going to affect all of us. So thank you so much.
1: Well, thank you so much for inviting me, and it was a pleasure sitting with you again.
0: Well, hello, Justin. Uh, Welcome to Equal Time.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Oh, great. Now, you're a young man, 24, not that long out of Rice University uh, in Houston. Where I understand you really became interested in the issue of environmental justice. So, how did that develop?
2: Right. So, you're absolutely right. I went to school at at Rice University in Houston. And, you know, for a long time, I was interested in medicine. I actually chose Rice because it stands right across the street from the world's largest medical center. And so, I remember in high school checking, you know, Google Street View to see how far my dorm was from the hospital that I wanted to, to shadow in. And so for me, I've always been interested in public health and health disparities. And I thought that the best way to address those issues would be medicine. Um, and that changed for me my final year of college. There was a hurricane, Hurricane Harvey, uh, that, that hit. And, you know, I, I sprung into action and worked with a lot of other students to, you know, send out volunteers, um, organize trips to shelters and, you know, removing drywall in people's homes and And I think that work made me a lot more aware about how climate and how environmental issues connect to public health. Uh, But it also made me more interested in just being on the ground, boots on the ground, and organizing people. And so that's the work that I'm doing now to this day.
0: Well, can you talk to our listeners about the concept of environmental justice, um, because making the connection with climate change, go- global warming, and the disparities that you are talking about? Because I-, I think that some of them might not quite understand what that really means.
2: Absolutely. So the, the term environmental justice and the environmental justice movement is really predicated on this on the fact that Black communities, Hispanic communities are oftentimes disproportionately exposed to things like landfills, toxic waste facilities, refineries. And so when we talk about what environmental injustice looks like, it looks like people having you know, lower academic achievement because they're learning in polluted areas. It's people paying more for healthcare because of asthma and cancer that's tied to pollution. It's people's homes being worth less than they would otherwise because they live right next door to a refinery. And so environmental justice is really about making sure that we're expanding this definition of what it means to be an environmentalist and expanding the definition of what it means uh, to care about climate change. All of these issues, whether it be climate change, pollution, impact people's lives on a day-to-day basis um, in the form of health, in the form of education, and in a lot of other ways, and so the environmental justice movement is 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 working to address all those issues on a on a grassroots level and on a day to day level as well.
0: Now, how did that come together? In a sense, in what happened in Texas,
2: right? So, in, and in it's te-
0: aftermath. Yeah, sorry.
2: Yeah, right. So, in, in Texas, you know, there's a, there's an organization called Tejas, which is the Texas Environmental Justice Advocacy Services Group. And, you know, that group and a lot of other groups have have done amazing research that basically showed that in the aftermath of Harvey, there were a lot of refineries and super fun sites that are super toxic that flooded. Um, There were sites that flooded carrying toxic material all throughout the city. There were also just um, a lot of the communities that were most exposed to, you know, these facilities flooding and the extra pollution that came out of these polluting facilities during the storm, were also the communities most likely to flood. Um, And so, you know, the linkages between who lives in floodplains, who is sited right next to, from a zoning standpoint, who is sited right next to toxic facilities, those two things are linked.
0: Well, now you're based in Detroit, um, and everybody, of course, knows about the water crisis that was in the state, Flint, Michigan, and in Detroit with the water shutoffs, and, and which was critical, especially now you have COVID in this time. Can you talk a little bit about that, what you're doing up there?
2: Right. So, you know, this is one of the reasons why I wanted to to come back to Michigan is that you, you mentioned the Flint water crisis, of course, is something that put environmental justice to the front of people's minds, but also in Detroit, you know, there have been issues around water access, people being shut off from water because of poverty. Um, Also people in in Detroit public schools having, uh, you know, high levels of lead and copper. And so whether it's water issues, whether it's air pollution issues, I really think that in a lot of ways, Michigan is at the epicenter um, for this fight for clean air and clean water. And so I, I moved back to Michigan, and now that's the work that I'm doing. Um, in the state of Michigan, minority communities make up 25% of the state, but 65% of those who are living right next to hazardous waste facilities, facilities that process some of the dirtiest and most harmful chemicals on the planet. Uh, the only refinery in the state of Michigan is located in Detroit, in a community that is the most polluted zip code in the state of Michigan. And we're also dealing with water access issues, as you, as you alluded to earlier but also issues just around protecting and preserving and making sure that our drinking water sources like the Great Lakes are protected. So you know, there are a lot of environmental and environmental justice and climate-related issues in Michigan, and, and I hope that my work to, to address those issues um, bears fruit.
0: It's interesting because when you have these crises, the attention turns to it like something like a flood, and then people's attention, they go to the next one somewhere else. But the effects continue, don't they, uh, especially on children. So oh, could you talk about that and also the policies that allowed the situation to happen and what's being done, some of the work I'm sure you're doing, uh, to establish equity and, and keep attention and action on these problems?
2: Right. Well, you're absolutely right that that environmental exposures, environmental issues can last for a very long time, years and generations in some instances as is the case with with Flint, Michigan. You know, there are organizations on the ground like Flint Rising and others who've been fighting to try to make sure that children can, for the rest of their life, get the sort of support, healthcare support, uh, social services support that's that's needed to make sure that people are healthy and living a good life, considering the harm that that they've been exposed to by the government. And I would say, uh, in regards to the Flint water crisis, it's very connected to you know the Detroit bankruptcy and, and other issues throughout the state of Michigan is it's, it's closely tied to emergency management and this this conversation about democracy. You know Flint's water source was switched um, from the Detroit um, sources to the Flint River, and that's one of the reasons why the Flint water crisis happened. And and what allowed that to happen was emergency management. Basically, the governor saying local control, you're not in charge anymore, we're going to give you an emergency manager to make the decisions that you elected your officials to do. And so I i, I think about democracy as an issue that's deeply connected to environmental justice issues in a way that we normally don't expect. Um, but you're absolutely right that these issues will last for a long time, whether it's air pollution, water quality. And that's why you know I've been trying and so focused on improving air quality in schools, trying to make sure that you know, students can learn in a healthy environment, have access to things like air filtration and air purification systems, and also just why people are, are so focused on making sure that we address uh, the public health impact of these environmental exposures. Because you know, if, you, if you get cancer or asthma from the environments you're living in, that can last for a lifetime.
0: Are voters and leaders and politicians paying attention?
2: I think that's starting to change. You're, you're hearing um, the, the Biden administration and and certainly presidential candidates during the primary were a lot more focused on environmental justice than they were previously. And, you know, I, th- I think this conversation around building back better has been about not just addressing COVID and the economy and racial justice, but climate change and doing it in a way that makes sure that we make sure sh- that we, you know, empower people with, with, with good economy and good clean, green jobs, but also trying to make sure that we're addressing pollution at the source. So I think, you know, the conversation is changing. Environmental justice movement is sort of at the center of this conversation around climate change and the environment, in in my view. And so I think that's changing. It's it's certainly a change from um, where we have been historically. And I think that's a change that's welcome.
0: Now, you brought up the Biden administration. Now, you... uh... You made some suggestions to the DNC's Environmental and Climate uh, Crisis Council. Uh, And so how would you evaluate the Biden administration's climate agenda, executive orders, uh, and his equity agenda? Because they're all related.
2: Right. Well, I I would say two things. Number one is that the Biden Climate and Environmental Justice Plan improved over the course of the campaign and over the course of the primary and the general election. And that happened because environmental justice advocates, young people, environmentalists, and just everyday people, you know, made their voices heard, um, advocated, organized to make the plan better. And that, so that, that's the first thing I would say. And the second thing I would say is we're seeing the Biden administration, you know, approach this issue very aggressively with executive orders um, and, and also trying to make sure that we, that we keep it in the front of people's minds. The Biden administration has said that racial equity, you know, of course, the pandemic, of course, the economy, and also, of course, climate change are the four top priorities, and I think that's a that's a huge shift from where we may have been, you know, a decade ago.
0: Yeah. Now, last year, on the occasion of the 50th anniversary of the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, you wrote a column uh, that I read that said we needed to envision a world in which the EPA not only protects our environment but also our health and our neighborhoods. So, what was the case that you were making?
2: The case that I was making is that when we think about what it means to be an environmentalist, we, you know, traditionally think of conservationists, we traditionally think of people, you know, who are saving the trees, saving the panda bears and and saving the wells. And that is something that I'm excited about. I live in a state that has, you know, great outdoor spaces, um, great access to, to water and 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 forest. But I also just think that we need to make sure that, that people's everyday concerns are being met. People who are concerned about health care, people who are concerned about, you know, the education of their children, people who are concerned about the economy. And in my view, the EPA has a role and just our federal response in general around environmental issues, has a role in, in making sure that people view environmental issues as more than just conservation and more than just protecting nature. And I think that the environment and and public health, environmental health are just so connected.
0: Well, you brought up that great outdoors image. And I know that you are an organizer with the Sierra Club, which most people associate it with the Folks in backpacks, climbing the mountains, all of that, uh, on the kayak and such. And why is this picture incomplete? And and we were talking before, you were telling me you have things like polar vortexes in Michigan that had some devastating consequences. So how, how do people need to shift their vision here?
2: Right. I mean, you're absolutely right that that is the image. When I talk to students, I ask people, you know, what do you imagine when you think of what it means to be an environmentalist? And that picture of the great outdoorsman is is what appears, and for a long time, you know, people have been left out of that conversation. Whether it's women or whether it's minorities who've been exposed to the sorts of toxins that that impact our, our environment. I'll give you an example in Michigan. You know, the polar vortex that hit in 2019, similar to the winter storm that hit Texas, it caused you know the only refiner in the state of Michigan to have a release incident that made people in the surrounding neighborhood sick and nauseous. And so that's an example where, you know, climate driven, whether it's disasters like hurricanes or extreme weather events um, are not just impacting, you know, our lakes, our streams, our forest, our, you know, agricultural sector, but they're also just impacting our neighborhoods, um, people who are living right next to these facilities. And so I, I think, you know, we have to make sure that we're changing that image. We have to make sure that people are excited about taking on this great challenge of of addressing climate change. And I think that making, you know, the connection between public health, between our economy and jobs, and making the connection um, in other ways is is the way to to get people excited about taking on this challenge.
0: I know you were a child. You really don't remember too much about Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, but that was a case where we talked a lot about the disparate uh, impacts on communities of color. And, you know, there were so many stories done about how the city was laid out, uh, the infrastructure and how it failed, particularly uh, the communities of color. Um, And what was your generation's take on this, particularly considering it seems like that the country kind of dropped the ball after that?
2: Right. Well, you know, in a weird way, I remember a lot about Katrina. Um, I remember images of of people being stranded on, on rooftops. So I remember learning in class years later about how the media portrayed, um, you know, black folks from New Orleans who were seeking assistance and also side-by-side, side, you know, white residents who were seeking assistance. And I also just remember, you know, I was, I was born in Michigan, born in Detroit, but I spent a lot of my childhood in the South. And so, you know, growing up in, in Birmingham, Alabama, I remember a lot of the folks from New Orleans who had to go to cities like Houston also went to cities like, like, uh, like Birmingham. And you know, I remember, you know, working on um, not rapid response work, but working on relief efforts with my mom who, you know, tried to assist and, and bring in a lot of families who were in need. And so I remember not the storm, not being impacted by the storm, but the aftermath of the storm. And I think that all of the disparate impacts that were just so clear from hurricane Katrina are popping up in so many other natural disasters that we're seeing every year. You know, the hurricane that hit Puerto Rico, the hurricane that hit South Florida, the hurricane that hit uh, Hurricane Harvey. Th- those hurricanes all happened within the same year. All kind of revealed this disparate impact that has been festering for such a long time, and also has revealed that the recovery process takes a long time. I saw you know messages from from folks who were going through the Texas storm that said. Many people haven't recovered from Harvey, and now we're going through another storm. We had a chemical fire the year before. And so, you know, I think these disparate impacts um, are lingering, and they also stack on top of each other. And so we need to address these issues at the root, and we need to address them with a sense of urgency as well.
0: As someone who thinks there needs to be a wake-up call on climate events and how they uh, affect every community, what would be on your list from where you sit a priority of policies that that really need to uh, be at the top of the list.
2: I think a, a couple of things that come to mind. Number 1 is we have to change the way we're we're addressing pollution at the source. You know, one of the one of the terms that people in the environmental justice movement use is this term called cumulative impact. And that basically is to say that uh, far too many communities have industry concentrating right next to each other, right in their neighborhoods. And right now our regulations, whether it's at the EPA level or at the state level, we measure um, industries and we measure their compliance facility by facility. And so if you're one facility that's right under the limits of the amount of air pollution you're allowed to put out, and you're right next to another facility that's also right next to the limit, you know, our our current regulations just don't account for that. So we need to address pollution at the source, number one. I think number two, we need to make sure that we're investing um, in all communities, especially communities that have been disinvested in. And I think states like Michigan have the manufacturing capacity and expertise to take on the clean energy jobs, whether it be from the wind industry or solar industry or electric vehicle industry, um, that that can both help you know, um, address the climate crisis that we have, but also address the economic concerns that I have and that a lot of other people have. So I think addressing pollution at the source, I think also making sure that we're investing in our economy um, through gr- through green jobs are the two things that are on the top of my list.
0: Quite a list, Justin. Uh, I do also want to ask you, uh, you know, I don't know all the technical aspects of your work, but what is a question uh, that I have not asked you That you wish I had, because you really think that there's something that needs to be said on that issue.
2: Yeah, I I would just say that um, one of the questions that people often ask that I think is a good one is, how can I get involved? Um, You know, there are a lot of national conversations related to climate change, national conversations related to environmental justice. But, you know, what can I do? I I live in a city, um, you know, that's interested in the issue, but just hasn't taken action. Uh, And to that, I would just say that most of the decisions that are important, um, that are connected to public health, that are connected to environmental health and environmental justice, a lot of those decisions are happening at the city level. You know, deciding how cities are zoned and which facilities go where and which neighborhoods get what type of resources and facilities those decisions happen in local planning meetings and subcommittee meetings of city council and county commission meetings. And those meetings, especially with the pandemic, are open over Zoom, one click away. Um, you can give public comment. You can, you can let your voice be heard. So I would just say that there's a lot of work to be done at the federal level, certainly. But there's also just a lot of work that is accessible and that we need uh, to happen at the local level as well.
0: Well, this has been a pleasure. I'm learning so much. And um, thank you again.
2: Thank you. Bye.
0: So what's keeping me up at night? Good government. Sounds simple, but so many politicians work so hard to win a job they have absolutely no interest in doing. If government is the problem, then what is its duty when there is a storm or a pandemic or a crisis? Do our contrarian public servants have a clue? Do we? It's what I'm writing about in my column this week in Roll Call. Check it out and let me know what's on your mind by tweeting me at mcurtisnc3. Thank you for listening to Equal Time. Please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.